1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is a husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Wow. Uh, we're treading on some pretty dangerous ground here this morning. Uh, all this talk about hats and veils and hairdos and heads and who's the head of who. Uh, maybe I'm the one who should have a bit of headwear on this morning. I'm thinking maybe a crash helmet or a ride helmet might be a, a good start. If, if there's a passage that can get a male chauvinist to climb aboard his high horse or that will bring the blood of a militant feminist to the boil, uh, this one's going to do it and it'll do it quick smart and it'll do it every time. Based on this passage, some denominations cling to a rule that ladies have to wear a hat in worship, whereas other churches will just throw this passage out altogether and say, oh, it's just irrelevant for us today, that's just a sign of the times, back when they didn't know any better and men oppressed women. But wow, what does it mean for us today? I'm going to be upfront with you. Today's Bible reading is without a doubt the toughest passage that I've ever had to prepare to preach on. Um, it's the toughest passage in the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a very tough book to preach from, but I also think it's one of the toughest passages in the whole of the Bible. And the reason it's so tough, some people will say, oh, it's only tough because you don't accept what it says, what it's plainly saying, whereas actually that's not the case at all. When you actually start studying it and really getting into it, the, the re reason it's so tough is because it's difficult, very difficult, to nail down exactly what it means and exactly what it's saying because it's speaking largely in metaphors. Its whole theological underpinning is given as a metaphor. So, when Paul says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ... The head of wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. 
Um, we might read of that and go, oh, well, we know what head means. That means that, you know, God's the boss of Jesus and man's the boss of woman and Jesus is the boss of men. And... But no, that's not at all what it's saying. Paul is using the Greek word kephale, which means a literal head, right? A cranium for those who know that term, all right? But because of the way that we use our English word head, so when it gets translated from the Greek into English, we have to translate it as head. But because of the way that we use our English word head, in this context, we don't think of it as a literal head. We think of it in terms of headship, like the headmaster or the head sharang, the ruler, the authority, the boss, the chief, the supreme one. And so we tend to understand that 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is talking all about headship without ever realising that this whole assumption is based on our English understanding of the English word head. Whereas the Greek word kephale means a literal head, your noggin, that thing that you, that's sitting on top of your shoulders, that thing which for some people looks pretty good and for people like me you go, ooh. Okay, uh, and that's why so many Christians uh, and so many churches disagree on this passage because it's talking, it's using a metaphor. And that's why so many churches disagree and not only on what it meant back then, but how it applies today. About 40 kilometres east of Warwick on the Great Dividing Range is a place called The Head. Anyone ever been there? No? Okay. Well, it's not named The Head because some 150 years ago a sailor went to the toilet there. For those who don't get that, The Head is what a sailor calls the toilet, okay? That's that's its name. No, that's not why it's called The Head. It's because it's the head of the river. It's the head of the Condamine River the source of the river, the top of this river system, which by the time it meets the ocean will have travelled some thousands of kilometres and through three states. And the Greek word head can be and is often used as a metaphor to mean source. And so it could be saying God is the source of Christ. Christ is the source of man. Man is the source of woman. And all this is true. And, but, but is that the key point that Paul's making here? Well, I believe it plays a large part in it, but I don't think it's the full meaning. The New International Greek Testament commentary explains it like this. The problem about translating kephale as head is in English-speaking contexts, the head almost always implies leadership and authority as in headmaster, head of school, head of department, head steward. But then it goes on to describe how the Greek term, in a metaphorical sense, when it got used, was more not as an authoritative leader in charge, but as one who is prominent, foremost, uppermost, preeminent. So, for example, I'm not a beer drinker, but beer drinkers apparently, for some reason unbeknownst to me, like to have a nice head on my pot of beer. Now, the head of the beer isn't its source. It's not the authority of the beer. It's just the top bit. 
It's that bit which sticks out. It's that bit which is prominent, that white, frothy bit of foam on top of the amber ale. Our physical head is both that part of us which is most conspicuous and that part of us by which we're most readily distinguished or recognised. That's why our passport photos don't have a photo of all of us. They only want a photo of our head. It's our identity. Our very identity of who we are, our honour, our respect, is all, resp is all represented right here at our head. It's that prominent bit of us. So, taking this perspective, the husband should be seen as prominent with his wife. And the wife's identity is bound up in her husband. Christ should be seen as prominent in relation to man. And man's identity is bound up in that of Christ. God is prominent in relation to Christ. Christ's identity is bound up in that of the Father. Right? So it's about source, but it's also about prominence and identity. There's a fair bit going on in the church in Corinth. And um, Paul has a fair bit to say in this letter. Um, and a fair bit of what he's been talking about and what he will continue to talk about is the way that the Corinthians there in that church were seeking prominence for themselves at the cost of the other. When we seek prominence for ourselves at the cost of the other, that brings shame. It's like, it's like we're seeking honour and we're just really wanting to be the ones who are recognised and we're wanting to be the ones who are prominent and we're putting ourselves out there. But it works in the opposite. It brings shame. It's like Jesus said, the first will be last and the last will be first. And, and this whole discussion is about prominence and shame. When we act in a way that tries to make ourselves prominent... It dishonours or it shames others. And the way that he's talking about it here, this passage is specifically talking about the way men and women relate to one another and the way we seek prominence. And this passage is specifically all about how the loss of gender identity is commonly an expression of self-promotion. And all this talk about hats and hairdos and heads can all be summarised like this. Let men be men and women be women. And we do it to honour each other, to honour God and to honour ourselves. So there you go. In a nutshell, that's a simplification of one of the most complex and confusing bits of scripture that I've ever had to preach on. And some of you might be satisfied with that little explanation. Let men be men and women be women, and we do it to honour each other, to honour ourselves, and to honour and honour God. So some of you might be satisfied with that explanation, but some of you might be wanting to have a bit more information. Well, how do you get to that from talking about hats and hairdos and veils and, and whatnot? So I am going to give you a bit of an explanation, but I'm going to give you a bit of a warning. Um, 
I'm going to leave a lot of questions unanswered today um, because there's just so many questions that we can let be left with this and I don't have all the answers. Let's start here. In the Roman culture, so I'm going to be starting with talking about headwear and veils and why he's talking about women having their heads covered. In the Roman culture, which was very prominent in Corinth, it was the custom that prominent women and especially, sorry, respectable women and especially married women would wear a veil or a hood. It denoted respect and respectability. What it said was, hey, don't have any designs on this woman, she's not available or she's taken. Whereas a woman who didn't wear a veil or a head, well, it meant that she was potentially or actually sexually available. So it was sort of like putting out a welcome mat for advances for men. Um, it'd give a similar impression as dressing like a tart might today. And likewise, for a man to wear a veil or to wear a hood was to dress in a way which was distinctly feminine, right? That was the way the ladies dressed. And for a man to, to wear a veil or a hood, um, it, it would be like a man wearing makeup today or having his hair done in a similar way to a lady. Now, in Christ, we, we, we have an immense freedom and, and before God, we are all equal. We're all sons of God. We're all heirs of the Father and joint heirs with the Son. But equality does not equal sameness. I, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but men and women, women are different. Have you noticed that? New revelation for anyone? Hopefully not. Um, men are not any better than women. Women are not any better than men. But we are different. God has made us that way. And we need each other. In verse 11 it says, the Lord, sorry, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of the woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Right? As men and women, we need each other. And women need men to be men, and men need women to be women. And that pretty much goes against the whole gender-neutral push that's going on in our current social engineering thing that's happening in our society, where the lines of gender are being blurred and we're being told there is no difference between men and women, and, and you're wrong to suggest there is. And so that's not what our society's saying. But you know there's a difference between men and women, don't you? Society are trying to live by a lie. And so when Paul says... Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. What he's saying is men, especially in worship, when they display themselves as being effeminate or when they seek to hide their masculinity, they're actually making themselves prominent. They stick out like a sore thumb. If I got up here to preach you to, to you today wearing a dress or wearing makeup. I'm sticking out, aren't I? What would you be concentrating? Would you be con concentrating on God or the word of God or would you be going, oh, look at him, that's weird. And isn't that so much the way? Isn't 
flamboyance often associated with those um, men who aren't acting in the way of masculinity, the homosexual, the metrosexual, the, or those who project a sexless or effeminate image. Prominence is what it is, and it dishonours his head. It brings shame on himself, because when he denies his gender, he denies what it means to be human, his place in God's creation. And by making himself prominent and maybe flamboyant in worship, it dishonours God. Now, I think we can take this much further than just that. If the worship leader or the preacher gets up and, and they make themselves prominent and they become the object of our worship, this is dishonouring God. Because God is the one who should be made prominent. Likewise, verse 5 says, But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. Anthony Thistleton puts it like this. In verse, verse 4, which relates to men, and verse 5, which relates to women, the principle remains the same. Self-advertisement, especially if it relates to the perceptions of the worship leader as an object of sexual attraction, diverts attention from God, who should be the centre of undivided attention. To employ a dress code which hints at sexual availability while leading worship is unthinkable. Let's put this in modern terms for today. I think we've already covered how it relates to men. Anything that we do that draws attention to ourselves, particularly putting out an effeminate image, it dishonours who we are and it dishonours God. It makes ourselves prominent in worship rather than the God who created us. What about women? We don't use veils or hoods anymore to identify marital status or to signal sexual availability. How do we do it today? Well, it's still very much tied up in how we dress. Now, I don't want to sound like a prude and at the risk of sounding like a prude, um, women can wield a lot of influence on a bloke. And when a lady dresses in alluring attire, they're making themselves very prominent. Now, I'm not just talking about when a lady looks nice. There's nothing wrong with a woman looking nice. But when a woman dresses provocatively, which so much of our clothing today does, she's making herself prominent. She's making herself the centre of attention. She's distracting our attention when our attention should be given entirely to God. And especially if a married woman dresses provocatively, she's not only dishonouring herself, but she's shaming her husband. So there you go. I've made my prudish statement for the day, and I hope that's okay. How else? Do we signal marital status and availability today? I guess wedding rings would be the obvious one. I, ha I have a wedding ring. And the wedding ring says, I'm married. I'm not available. I'm joined to my husband or my wife, depending on what sex you are. But some women, well, they're willing to wear a wedding ring because they take the attitude, well, my husband wears one too. Yes, I'll wear one there as well. 
But sometimes a lady will refuse to take the surname of her husband. And I might upset a few people today, but I would suggest that when a woman decides to keep her own surname, that says a lot about her desire for her own prominence. She wants to maintain her own identity instead of having her identity bound up in that of her husband. And this dishonours her husband and therefore dishonours God. Now, now these are just all practical examples of how we should not seek prominence for ourselves. Let men be men. Let women be women. And we do it to honour each other, to honour ourselves and to honour God. And that's why Paul then gets into this whole area of shame. When a wife self-advertises by her manner of dress and, and asserts herself as being independent of her husband, it's shameful. It shames her, it shames her husband. And so Paul says, it gives an example of the level of shame that it is. Um, in pretty much every society, a woman's hair can either be a source of glory for her or a source of shame. Um, if you don't believe me, let me tell you this little story. Uh, when Robin and I were newlyweds and, and we were running on a very tight budget, um, I sort of was suddenly realised how much it cost for a lady to get a haircut at the hairdressers. And we were really trying to rein in the budget and, like, I've, I've shorn sheep and I've cut hairs of boys and stuff. I'm thinking, how hard can it be? I could save a fair bit of money here. And a lot of people have been really surprised and they've sort of said to me, Michael, how on earth did you manage ever to convince Robin? But I did. I, 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 I kept at her and at her and at her until finally she agreed... Yes, all right, I'll let you cut my hair. And so I approached it with, same as most things, um, thinking, right, oh, well, I guess the logical way is we'll cut off the big chunks first, get it somewhere near about the right length, and then I'll do the tidy up and spruce up and make it all look nice. So that's what I did, sat her down. And it only took about four or five chomps with the scissors, and I thought, I reckon that's about the length we need. And I said to Robin, now, Robin, I want you to know, I haven't finished yet, and I'm not claiming to be finished. I've just cut the big bits off, and I think we've got it around about the length that we want it. And, um, but what, can you just have a look in the mirror and let me know if you're happy with that length? And, and if so, then, then I'll do the tidy up and it'll look nice. And Robin looked in the mirror, and she just burst into tears. I've never felt so bad as a husband. She just burst into tears. And I thought it was terribly unfair because she wouldn't let me finish, but she just wouldn't let me anywhere near her. And, and even now, if I've got a pair of scissors in my hand, it's sort of pretty much understood we've got to have at least a five-yard buffer between her and I. I'm just not allowed anywhere near her with these scissors. And so she then rung a friend of ours who was a hairdresser and cried to her, can I come to your house, please? She was shamed. Her hair, in the state it was, was shameful to her and she wouldn't be seen in public until our friend had sorted it out for her. Now, 
Short hair, cropped hair, shaved head for most women is a source of shame. Maybe not so much now since, um, since Sinead O'Connor became famous. Um, is she still famous or is that only my era that have heard of Sinead O'Connor? <laughs> Lauren, Lauren, who's a musical person, has never heard of her. So let's say anyone over 30 probably knows who she is. <laughs> and so basically, what Paul is saying is for both men and women, putting yourself out there and self-advertising and making yourselves prominent, especially in worship, is shameful. Because worship should be all about God. Righto, let's move on. When we come to worship, who are we to worship? God. It's not a hard question, is it? We come to glorify God. When verse 7 talks about how man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man... He's talking about the created order and the source of where we are created from. It's not got nothing to do with the woman being any less than man. It's like when we think about the order that children are born in, the eldest child is no better than the youngest child in the family, but they were born in a different order and thus they have a different role at different stages of their life and different expectations fall upon them. God is glorified in his creation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God is glorified in his creation, and we know that God created man and woman. Male and female, he created them, we're told. But God did create Adam first. When God created Adam, he said, This is very good. But he realised there was something missing. Something was needed to complete Adam. And so he created Eve. He took a piece of Adam and God created Eve. He put Adam into a deep sleep. He took out a piece of Adam's rib and created a woman. And this time it was Adam who said, Woohoo! Well, that's pretty much the Australian version of what he said. <laughs> What he said is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, what's, what's Adam doing here? Adam is seeing Eve as a piece of himself and as, as his own glory. She is from me and she is for me. And men, isn't this part of... Our wives are not our wives part of our glory. This woman is part of me and she is for me. And if in worship men see women for their glory, our worship is being directed to the wrong place. Let's bring it forwards to today. If a man's wife goes on show as his stunning trophy wife, that's man seeking his own glory. Wow, look at the hot babe I'm married to. I'm, I'm punching well above my weight. He wrongly sees glory being for himself. Women 
are not meant to be trophies and certainly not in the context of worship. Everything we do should be done for the glory of God. Righto. Verse 10. Uh, something that I found as I was working my way through this passage just doesn't get any easier or less weird um, as it goes on. Verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That's the, that's the way that our translation translated it today. Now, the translation we had this morning was the English Standard Version, and I use that version most of the time because I find it's usually very close to the, to the proper text. Um, not so this time. In the Greek, it doesn't have the word symbol. It literally says, because of this, a woman ought to have authority, or another word could be power, upon her head on account of the angels. Or another way it could be translated just as validly could be because of this, a woman ought to keep control of her head on account of the angels. It can be interpreted in just so many different ways. And so some people look at it and they go, well, you know, by a woman wearing a veil or a hat in church, that's a symbol that her husband has authority over her. And yet, as is written in the original Greek, it could just as validly be interpreted to say that, that to be talking about a woman having authority or power or control over her own head. Now, I don't know which way it should be interpreted. Uh, Various people disagree on it. But I do know that when we go about self-advertising and promoting ourselves, sorry, when we don't go about self-advertising and promoting ourselves, when we maintain honour and dignity, when we dress modestly, and when we don't seek attention for ourselves, there's the power of God at work. Whether you're a man whether you're a woman, you're in a good place to pray. You have power to pray. You have power to prophesy when we do not promote ourselves as being prominent, when we don't dress shamefully, when we don't behave shamefully. Then we're in a good place to pray and prophesy. Why? Because we're putting God first and our worship is holy and entirely for God and God alone. And it's very important for us to be in that place where God is the prominent one in our worship. Why? Because of the angels. What on earth does that mean? Satan is a fallen angel. Why did he fall? Because although he is one of God's top angels, that wasn't enough for him. He wanted more than that. He wanted to promote himself and put himself in the position of God. Now, did you know that when we come together in worship, it's not just human worship. It's not just here, us, here, humans. The angels join together in worship with us. When we pray, the angels join in our prayer. When we sing, the angels join in our song. They're watching us. 
They're amongst us. They're interacting with us. And here's the kicker. We are examples for them. Worshipping God without self-seeking and without self-promotion is a witness to even the angels. Now, I reckon we've gone far enough today and I may have given you more questions than answers. Um, How much do we make worship about ourselves? And how much do we make worship about that person who's out the front? Not just in our own little fellowship, but when we get to go away to to a great big worship experience and, and they've got world-class singers and musicians and world-class speakers. How much do we make worship about the one up front instead of about God? Let's not be self-seeking. Let's not go elevating ourselves or promoting ourselves. And let's be very aware that the way we conduct ourselves in worship It impacts others in worship. It even impacts the angels of heaven. So let's worship God in humility and present ourselves in modesty. Let men be men and women be women. And we do it to honour each other, to honour ourselves and to honour God. Let's leave behind shame and direct our worship to God and not ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's been a tough passage this morning, and Lord, I admit to you, I don't have all the answers about what you're saying in this, and, and I struggle to, to begin to comprehend the profound things that we can learn about you and your glory and your honour and what is due to your name. Lord, we're left feeling in awe of you. And Lord, I pray that more and more it would become less of self and more of you. Lord, may you be the prominent one. May you be foremost in our worship. May you be foremost in our very lives, for our lives themselves should be worship. To God be the glory, forever and ever. Amen.